We're going to start today on the seven signs of Christ, that is the divine signs that God has written for us, in which Jesus made it clear, and God punctuated it, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And so my, my job today is to take you back 2,100 years, 2,100 years to a simple village in Palestine called Cana, where one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world will take place. And we're going to focus on the theological impact of that miracle, of a very critical miracle as Jesus will announce to the world that I am God. I am the Son of God and that I've come to save humanity. And so, as Jesus begins his public ministry, and this will be the beginning of his public ministry by performing one of these seven signs, he does it into this very nondescript place in a simple wedding. We don't even know the names of the bride and groom, but there he will turn water into wine. And I'm going to show you how the Bible prophesied that he would do that and why it's critical for you to know it, which underscores the nature of Jesus being God. Let's look at our reading at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It should be on the board. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is a typical Jewish mother <laughs> telling her son, there's a problem here. you got to fix it. Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said to, said to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Lord, what an amazing story. And so at first glance, <clears throat> when we read this and we think about it, it seems rather pragmatic. Uh, one could understand it perhaps as Jesus trying to please his Jewish mother. Uh, and, but if you did that, if you go down that, you're making a mistake. This has far deeper theological implications, uh, because in the midst of this mundane wedding, Jesus is effectively using a trumpet to notify the world the Son of God has come. Sins will be forgiven. 
you will be delivered, and I have with me the power of God enforcing this. He is now announcing, really, the end of the old order, the end of the old covenant, and the announcing of a new covenant in which he would preside. Effectively, it would be the beginning of the messianic age. This was a critical step prepared by God. Now, this is important for you to understand this, because everything that we do in this church is to prepare you to go out and bring this message to a lost world. And this is important in this first step as well. To fully understand the significance of this sign, we must understand two things about the setting. We always look at context. The cultural setting of a first century wedding and the interaction between Jesus and his mother. Now, weddings in the first century were critical events. They were important social events. They're not like events today uh, where typically a wedding takes a couple hours. In those days, a wedding could take a week, and it would involve the entire community, and they would all come together. Uh, It became a community event, and the entire village would be invited. And so these lengthy events had great significance uh, in terms of the standing of the bride and groom. They had great social significance, and people depended on the quality of the hospitality. You understand that? It was the quality of the hospitality. How was the food? How was the wine? How did you treat your guests? All of this was critical in the way a couple would be evaluated and their social standing in the community. Running out of wine is an unbelievably big mistake. All right, It would have great social implications. In fact, as I studied this, there's instances in the Old Testament where people sued, hard to believe, sued over the fact that they had come to a wedding and they had run out of wine. You understand? This was no mere mistake. And so both she, the fact that both she and Jesus attend this wedding seems to indicate that there was some relationship that they had uh, with the bride and groom, that they were certainly friends. It would also explain why Mary seems to have taken control. Now, in that role, you might say, well, she was a typical Jewish mother, kind of, you know, taking, taking a, a charge of a place. But really, no, we seem to think that Mary had some more significant relationship here, certainly with the, with the groom, and so why she was concerned about this celebration. Uh, and so what do we learn here about Jesus' presence at this wedding? Well, I would say to you this, the fact that Jesus came to this wedding to announce who he was indicates in this first miracle that Jesus is sanctifying the nature of an institution of marriage and the ceremony of marriage. Uh, And so the ceremony is the essential element in which the couple give testimony to their lifelong commitment to each other. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament support this view and make it a very necessary part of marriage. And so here he is, the Son of God, appearing here and lending support putting his imprimatur on that marriage relationship. Now, the shortage of wine uh, at, the, at the wedding led Mary uh, to take charge of this pressing problem. This was quite a pressing problem. 
Uh, and it made sense that Mary would seek out her oldest son. After all, it appears that Joseph, his father, is deceased at this time. And so Jesus is the eldest son. And so Jesus would be the person who she would most likely look to. Uh, and so she rushes to Jesus to try to solve this problem. Uh, and they have a very interesting exchange. Now, this exchange is no mere exchange between a mother and a son. It has far greater, greater theological implications, and I want you to focus on this. Mary effectively approached Jesus by simply declaring in John chapter 2, verse 3, they have no wine. That's it. They have no wine. Uh, and Jesus responds in a rather terse manner, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That's John chapter 2, verse 4. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, you know, many of us grew up in churches where that was kind of brushed aside, and you almost were taught, well, Jesus was a little aggravated. He was a little terse with his mother. Uh, he was a little uncomfortable with his mother, but I don't believe that. Because as you study the original Greek, what you will see that the terminology of woman was an appropriate term. It was a generous term. It was a gracious term. It was a formal term. It was a formal term. It wasn't like saying mom. It was a formal term. And what was happening here is Jesus was drawing a line in the sand. This announces that I am the son of God. This announces that I am going to the cross my hour is not yet come, meaning I'm here in this world to do the work of my Father. That work ends on the cross. And yes, you are my physical mother, but the relationship that we have as mother and son is superseded, you see. As I draw this line in the sand, superseded by the work of my Father. All right? You just can't come to me the way you would come to me before. It's a far deeper, important relationship that now you need to understand because you, like everyone else in the world, need to be saved as well. And so this incredible statement is a precursor to what's going to come on. My hour is not yet come. Jesus is pointing the attention of his mother to his mission. She knew that he was sent by God, but she didn't have the full panoply of what would be opening up for Jesus. She didn't understand, really, he would go to the cross, although when, when, when he was uh, baptized in the temple, she had some understanding that there would be hard times. But this was all going to be unraveled for her. And now having Jesus say, my hour, my hour, my, miss my, my mission is, is not yet come, he was telling her, that his enduring purpose to the world would be to fulfill the plan of his father. He was reminding his mother, yes, I'm your son, but now I have a greater relationship. Uh, and so when he says to her, what do you and I have in common? On one level, Mary and Jesus had a lot in common. She was his mother. But another level, they were worlds apart. All right? He, she was just another sinful descendant of Adam. Uh, his statement to her here in this public display of ministry means that he no longer relates to her as a son, but rather now as a Messiah, 
as the son of God. Yes, mother. Yes, woman. You need to come to faith. You need to believe in me like the lost world. I've come to die on the cross to give you eternal life. It's incredible, really. Uh, By responding to Mary and telling her that his hour had not yet come, one theologian wrote, and I love this, Mary was like every other person who must come to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Effectively, Jesus was evangelizing his mother. How about that? Evangelizing his mother. And at the wedding of Cana, Jesus performed a sign that spoke profoundly about spiritual truths about his identity. That's why this is so critical, why it is the first sign of the divine Jesus, about his mission and purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul describes the radical change of the new birth. And that's what this is all about. The marriage of Cana and the creation of wine is all about the new birth. And there Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's what Jesus was announcing here. The old is gone. The old purification pots, the water that was in the purification pots, the pots that were supposed to cleanse you as Jews, which failed miserably, the old covenant which announced the law and you failed to understand the law, has all now been superseded by the Son of God as the Messianic age comes upon us. He was broadcasting, you see, broadcasting here uh, about the radical change that he was bringing about. There could be no greater radical change than turning water into wine. It was a radical change that he was using to announce to the world that he alone possessed the power to make that change. He performed this first sign to demonstrate that the old things were passing away and all things were about to become new in him. And so when Mary came to Jesus... She made a very simple statement. They have no more wine. Uh, But woven into that statement, and I want you to think about this, was a deeper theological profound truth regarding the truth and status of first century Judaism, which was now about to be eclipsed by the work of Jesus Christ. Effectively, this was a theological statement about where Judaism had been now after several thousand years and now meeting the Messiah face to face. Jesus was declaring the old covenant is finished. The old covenant of Judaism had failed. You were supposed to be the evangelist to a lost world, preparing the world for the Messiah, and it had failed. You couldn't keep up with the law. You didn't recognize that you were sinners. You elevated the law, but the law failed in its role in that regard. And so this this miracle effectively is indicating that the formal aspect of Judaism is finished. The formal aspect of the old covenant is finished. It all now as a confluence as it comes together with our Lord and Savior, as Jesus now is announcing to a lost world. Now, Jesus made this point uh, by the water he chose to use in the miracle. 
He created uh, wine for the water in six jars that John tells us were used for the purifying of the Jews. Let's understand what this is about. The Jews had purification jars. And what this meant is as they went out into the world, as they had contact with Gentiles, they would come back and they would purify themselves. They would wash themselves. They believed that the sins of the world would come off them because they washed it in the purification jars. Well, guess what? No sins were washed away. You understand? They were worried about coming into contact with Gentiles. Yeah, you, people like you. They come into contact with you. They wanted to make sure that they had that washed off. In fact, God had called them to impact the world, and Jesus understood this. And so it was a failure, an absolute failure. Uh, It never did what it was supposed to do because their hearts weren't right. It didn't purify them from sin because they didn't bow and end submission and ask God to wash them. They lifted up the law as if the law was the answer to it. Jesus was declaring here that the old covenant of Judaism was ineffectual and about to crumble. Can you imagine at this simple village of Cana? When I was there in Israel, I went to visit it. Now it's no more than a truck stop. But when I thought back 2,100 years, how how amazing it would be as to what God would do here. And so here you understand the impact of Jesus taking these purification jars that had failed, how, how Judaism had failed, how the old covenant had failed. And so now God is reinstituting his law forever that everything would be made new in Christ Jesus. You no longer had to worry about the law. Instead, you came to faith with Christ Jesus. And so Jesus responds in generosity and grace, and he commands, you see, the servants to fill the water pots with water up to the brim. Isn't that Jesus? Fill them. Fill them. Don't fill it halfway. Don't fill it two-thirds. Fill it to the top. And as I think about this now, it's really how we want the Holy Spirit to fill us. You don't want a half-filling. You don't want to walk around limp because you've only got halfway filled. Jesus is saying, fill it to the brim. Fill it to the brim, and it's the generosity of God, the grace of Jesus Christ that he would do that, ordering it. What a magnificent show of the grace and power of Christ. Fill it to the brim. Such a large amount of wine would have been somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot of wine for a marriage celebration that had already gone on for a few days. Well, I'm going to submit to you that that was part of the generosity of Christ because he gave this gift knowing that this couple were not rich. It's a poor couple. He's giving them a gift where they would be able to take this wine and sell this wine uh, and uh, be able to have uh, money to sustain themselves. If you've seen the movie The Chosen, this is one of the more dramatic moments in that movie. I commend that greatly to you. And so he takes this potentially embarrassing moment, and under the grace and power of Jesus Christ, he elevates it. He elevates it and makes it a generous wedding present and announcement. I am the Son of God. I make all 
things new. He is declaring the dawning of a new age, an absolute new age, as one covenant replaces the other. And so here he is announcing that he is effectively the, the Messiah. Now, in order to understand the issue of turning water into wine, I want you to look at Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. This is key, because now you understand the prophecy of God 700 years before Christ would come. You would understand why it was wine that was created and what God was doing there. Look at these verses there on the board. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And now, church, let me ask you, could it be any clearer as to what God had prophesied 700 years before this marriage, before this event? Look at what it says here. God will prepare a banquet of aged wine. Underline that in your Bible. Aged wine, not fruit juice. Aged wine. Wine that had been fermented. And the word in Greek, if you go back and look at the words in the early Greek that was used here, is oinos. Oinos, which means fermented grape of the vine. Fermented. And so why would God there say aged wine? Because he wasn't doing a parlor trick. He was taking water and going through it as if it had been aged for a year or two years and doing it in a powerful way. And then what does it say for the next sentence? The finest of wines. The finest of wines. And you're going to see that as we go through that, that the, that the head of the feast said, this is the finest wine. You have served it later. All right? Nobody would do that because they know that when they serve wine after we've been drinking for a few days, nobody knows the difference between good wine or bad wine. Why is that? They're bombed. <laughs> That's right. Even back then, they would be bombed. You won't find that word in the Bible, but I'm telling you, that's that's what goes on. That's what the master of the feast was saying. But you, you have brought the finest after, all right? Because that's what Isaiah said Jesus would do. That's what Isaiah said. And look what he says there as a result, what this indicates. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. What's the shroud that enfolds all people? Sin. You understand? Sin. Jesus and the marriage of Canaan effectively is making an announcement. Sin will be destroyed forever. 
for all people. Notice this. This says all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles and all people. That covers all nations. And there it says he will wipe away the tears. How can he wipe away the tears? He's wiping away the tears because he will defeat death. He will defeat death. Death will be no more. Yes, you'll still die in this world, but you will live forever in the sight of God with your family in heaven. That's what's taking place. And so there you're saying there, and it says it again, he will save us. Our Messiah will save us. We are going to celebrate his salvation. You see, all of this was prophesied and predicted 700 years before that simple wedding. Do you understand now why this wedding has such profound greatness? Why it resonates today as if it were yesterday? And so Isaiah is prophesying, really, that the abundance of fine wine will be a sign of the victorious reign of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus turned water into wine there, the wine was both plentiful and superb. How about that? Exactly what God had written. Plentiful and superb. Most of the, both of these factors were critical factors to indicate Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, and so it's important that you understand that. Look at what the master of the feast said in John chapter 2, verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. That's what Christ does. He brings the best into your life. When he brings salvation, your old life is gone forever. Your new life is so much more powerful and enriched because he turns the old into new. That's what he did, all right? And so Jesus is doing this in front of a whole ceremony of people that could see he is the son of God. He's doing it in the most public display. And so Jesus is establishing a line in the sand. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I have come to establish a new order. What has gone before is merely prologue, all right? And all these vessels that were ceremonial vessels of washing and purification are now vessels of joy because we have the joy of salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike the old covenant of Judaism, which effectively had run out of wine, run out of wine, the ministry of Jesus is brimming over, brimming over with an abundance of wine, with an abundance of grace. The old has gone, and the new has come. You know, C.S. Lewis had a famous saying, and what he said is, God does not do parlor tricks. God does not do parlor tricks. Meaning what? If God does something, there's a significant and profound reason why he's doing it. He's not doing it just to show you he's a magician. Instead, he's doing it to deliver a deep theological truth. He's impressing upon you the certainty of the fact that you are in the presence of the Messiah. And he expects a specific response to it. Uh, now that we understand the setting of this ceremony and the nature of what Jesus did, how should we respond? 
I've brought you back 2,100 years so that you can be there at that wedding. You could see the water being turned into the wine. What's your response to it today? John gives the expected response in John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first purpose of the sign was to manifest the glory and power of the Messiah, to demonstrate that the old had changed, the new had come. Uh, and so, obviously, the disciples saw it. They had a front row seat. They saw what they did, and they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the proper response today has got to be the same. You, like those disciples, we've brought you back. You've heard the word of God. You are witnesses to the sign of Jesus Christ and the power of it is the living word of God. It's as if you were all today guests at that wedding. God expects you to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and he expects you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This demands two responses from us. First, do you see the glory of Jesus? And second, are you testing his wine? And that's what you have to do as you leave here, because I know this church is filled with believers, but we, we preach to you so that you can go out and deliver this message to others. If this message merely resonates with you and it stays with you and you don't deliver it to your family or to your friends or to your neighborhood, then you know what? We have failed. God has failed to impress upon you the nature of this message. You need to bring this message to a lost world. They need to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They need to know that he took wine, and he took water, rather, and turned it into wine. He took the failed purification vessels and elevated them so that they would become containers of joy in every possible way. Look, Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He asked to see the glory of God. And God said all he could show him was his back. He could not show him the glory. But now, today, because of what Jesus has done, you are granted the privilege that Moses didn't get. You see the glory of God. And his glory is named Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We, we have beheld his glory. Now, if you're a believer... If you're a believer, the sign calls you to see the glory of the Savior, uh, and it, it's, it's called to make you a new creation. You understand that? You were once like the impotent water pots at that ceremony that had failed miserably. Uh, you were like the old covenant Judaism, uh, and, and it had failed miserably. Uh, but Jesus has made you a new creation. You're here because he's created you as a new creation. Uh, and this is critical that you understand this. And it calls upon you to embrace this new life, to embrace the call that God has for you, for what you want. God can no more change your nature uh, than could the water change itself to wine in those old water pots. You need Christ to change your nature. So if you're here today and you still have not accepted Christ, and you're still walking around with those old water pots of flesh, Change today. Ask God to change today. Ask God to fill you with his spirit. Call upon him to accept him as your Lord and Savior and walk out of this church 
as a new creation, changed forever, forever and ever. That is the wine of the gospel of Christ Jesus, which is being offered to you. This is what Jesus is bringing to us. This is the critical nature of this, uh, this first sign. He is calling you, calling you to exchange the bitter water of your sins for the fine, abundant wine of forgiveness. Taste, taste the joy of forgiveness and the power of the resurrected life. Taste, taste the Messiah. Taste what God has done. Leave this church today with this message in boast in your, in your heart. Leave this message resonating as you see God announced forever, the old is over. The new has come. I am the Messiah. Everything old will now be new. Change me, Jesus. Change me, Jesus, in that same way. Help me to leave here and to articulate this message to the world that needs to see it. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you so much for allowing us to be privileged to see this wedding, to bringing us back 2,100 years, to be a guest as we see our Christ sitting there and taking the old purification pots and changing them forever. As we stand in the shadow of Judaism that had failed, the old covenant that had not done what it should have done because the people were irresponsible and not submissive. And yet you, God, you gave us the grace. You announced in Isaiah what you would do. You gave the template to what Christ would do at that wedding. And 700 years later, he followed the template exactly the way you intended. Lord, let, let us let this message resonate in our hearts. Help us to be changed into new wine. Help us, Lord, to embrace you and to be the kind of men and women that you would have us be as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.